special Father's Day edition of the Never Let the Fire Die Alarm Podcast with a true story written and read by Alarm Podcast host Steve Fulton. A moment near Aspen Grove. We were on our way to Aspen Grove, a small campground in the Sierra Nevada mountains, a high-elevation desert landscape in Northern California. The campground was near Mono Lake, where Clint Eastwood filmed my dad's favorite movie, High Plains Drifter. It was also close to Bodie, one of the largest still-standing ghost towns in the gold country, where the California gold rush began in the 1840s. My dad loved these types of things the most. History, cowboys, treasure maps, and the beauty of desert wildlife. I'm called to these places, he told us over and over. When the call came, his boys, my brother and I, dutifully joined him on his adventures. As we drove the last 100 miles or so to our destination, my dad stuck a cassette in the car tape player, Luciano Pavarotti. My dad listened to only three cassettes, Pavarotti, Julio Iglesias, and Laura Branigan. On these long trips to the gold country, my brother and I swapped seats halfway through the eight-hour drive. The good half was spent in solitude, in the back, in the camper, reading computer magazines and listening to The Alarm, The Smithereens, or Soul Asylum on a Walkman. The front seat was for sitting up, helping navigate, and listening to my dad's three tapes. My brother and I took these trips with my dad once a year. Dad would spend months planning the route, the location, the campsites, and where we would search for treasure or artifacts. His hunger for adventure was fed by his boredom from his day job, working on government contracts at Hughes Aircraft. He talked often about boredom and encouraged my brother and I to find a way to fight it when we grew older. However, my dad's need for adventure was matched only by my desire to forget about school and work and disappear for a few days in the wilderness. The destinations were interesting, but the car trips there and back were unbearably long and, ironically, given my dad's quest to alleviate it, boring as all hell. While in the front seat on a long drive, conversations with my father were pained and strained and filled with uncomfortable silence. He could not hear well in his right ear, and that happened to be the ear that pointed towards the passenger seat that I sat in. At home, I could enter his room, sit on the foot of his bed, and capture his attention long enough to strike up a conversation about one of his passions. This was the best way to talk to my dad, on his turf, discussing his stuff. Our conversations ranged from the JFK assassination, to Civil War battles, from Kevin Costner movies, to the mysterious reasons why I had not yet graduated from college. So to me, it was four hours in the front seat, virtually alone, looking at miles and miles of empty desert, listening to the three tapes my dad allowed in his truck. Not that there was anything necessarily wrong with Pavarotti, Iglesias, or really even Laura Branigan. It was just I had no connection to them other than the fact that my dad liked them. I liked my own music and my own stuff, and I wanted to listen to it as we drove to our destination. A little past the midway point on Interstate 395, we stopped in the town of Lone Pine, on our way up towards Mono Lake. Lone Pine was unique in that a local geographical feature named the Alabama Hills was used as a filming location for hundreds of movies and TV shows. My dad's favorite movie from his childhood, Gunga Din, was filmed there. 
We did not need gas or food at that point in the trip, but my dad usually made some kind of excuse to stop in Lone Pine. I theorized that it was to feel the vibes of the area, an expression he used to describe when he was making a soulful connection to the world around him. I was a suspect of the concept then, as I am curious of it now. Stuck in my own world, I took the stop as a chance to switch tapes on my dad. When he was out pumping a few gallons of unnecessary gas, I slipped something into the tape player I thought he might like. I never tried to play him the alarm before. He must have heard them being played in my bedroom thousands of times before, but he never mentioned it, and neither did I. They were an 80s band inspired by punk and Woody Guthrie. They played mostly acoustic guitars and harmonicas at a lightning pace and sing about hope and social justice. However, if you did not listen closely, they sounded a bit like cowboys belting out vaguely patriotic rock, which I thought my dad might appreciate, at least on the surface. As our Toyota pickup with the Lance Camper on the back rolled out of the Lone Pine Exxon station, the first strums of Absolute Reality acoustic version came out of the stereo. I chose this song because, one, it was up-tempo but acoustic. Two, I liked it. Three, it was the first song on the tape. As Lone Pine became a small spot in the rearview mirror, I nervously listened to the song play, trying not to look in my dad's direction. At first, he said nothing. I took this as a good sign. Then after a couple minutes, he started in. I do not like his voice, he said. My dad was referring to Mike Peters, the lead vocalist for The Alarm. While no one could confuse Mike Peters with Luciano Pavarotti, I liked his vocal abilities very much. He had a warm, hard twinge to his voice, almost raspy, but not quite a growl. He did not scream like a punk singer, nor did he have a falsetto like many of his new wave contemporaries. His voice was right in the middle, and he sang songs like he meant them. And he wanted you, the listener, to understand that he meant them. It was a genuine sort of earnestness that I could then, and still now, completely identify with. However, my dad saying, I do not like his voice, translated to, turn it off, and so I did. The truth was, my dad's interests and opinions dominated much of my life. While my mom kept very quiet about her beliefs, besides carting us to Catholic Church as often as we would allow, my dad was very outspoken about what he thought about the world around us, and it had a huge effect on my life. Long before I formed my own alternative opinions, his politics became my own. He only ate organic food and avoided wheat, dairy, and sugar, so the diet in our house was formed along those lines. The movies he liked were the movies I watched. He liked model trains and stamp collecting, so I did too. He liked the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Dallas Cowboys and rooting for the underdog, and I was inclined to go along with him. He liked back roads, ghost towns, and looking for things that helped him connect with the past, and he taught me to like those things as well. This was not necessarily a bad thing, mind you, but it also left little space for differing opinions or ideas in our family dynamic. The lack of space had a physical manifestation as well. We were a family of six sharing a tiny house with one bathroom. My brother and I shared a 10 by 10 bedroom for 24 years together, piled on top of each other as we grew from 20 inch long, 3.5 pound premature twins into six foot tall, 170 pound college students. My dad talked often about adding to the house so we could have more room, but it never happened. As he got older, his own hobby sucked away most of the disposal income in our household, and that became his priority. By the time I was a teenager, I was still sleeping in the same bed he made for me when I was three years old, a piece of old styrofoam laid over a wood board, and our bathroom had a huge rotting hole in the floor. However, his bedroom drawers were filled with priceless Civil War artifacts that he collected, hidden away for eternity. 
Funny, though, if you give a kid a little space, he'll run with it. My brother and I filled our tiny slice of personal area with things that were totally our own, that we bought with our own money from jobs at the public library, me, a record store, my brother. Posters of bands, records, tapes, and CDs, books and magazines about music, a guitar, an amp, a TV, a stereo system, all manner of video and computer games, discs, cartridges, plus a rotating stash of candy that my dad never knew existed, but we feared he would one day uncover. These were all things that I could call my own, and the one thing that stood above them all was the rock band that caught my attention when I was 13 and had been my saving grace for my entire teenage years, The Alarm. The Alarm was one of the few things in the world that I discovered myself. My sisters had not introduced them to me. My mom had not sent me to a class to learn about them, and my dad had not played them for me. I was the one who saw their video on Video One with Richard Blade in 1983. I was the one who spent my confirmation money on their first album, Declaration, in 1984. I was the one who listened to it every single night in 8th grade on an old tape recorder with giant headphones. They were my band, and I kept on following them even after my fickle school friends grew up and moved on to other things. I collected all the records, and when there was nothing else to buy, I collected the live tapes and the press releases and the posters and the t-shirts and anything else I could find that would solidify the alarm as my band, something I discovered myself. But in the cab of the truck on our way to Aspen Grove, things were different. My dad's presence was overwhelming. This was his space and I was just visiting. I admired him very much for not being a fence sitter. He had strong beliefs. And even if I had grown out and away from most of them, I did not necessarily want him to change himself. He had come to his conclusions by living his own life his way. He was also totally undebatable. If he did not like the song, it was time for something else. I put his Laura Brannigan tape in, and we listened for a while. All the way past the site of the Manzanar Japanese internment camp and through the town of Independence, Brannigan sang her sweet, energetic pop songs. I let the tape run out and then inserted another cassette with the alarm on it. We were just outside Big Pine when the alarm EP made it past the leader and the first few notes of The Stand started to play out of the speakers in the cab of the Toyota. The alarm EP might be my favorite record ever recorded. It was five slices of what made the alarm great and what made them stand out among their contemporaries. On that record, they sounded like no other band that came before or after. The sound was at once punk, and pop and folk played with carefully crafted wild abandon. It combined harmonicas, barnstorm stomping, electrified acoustic strumming, military-style snare drumming, and hoops and hollers into a mix that defied description. If I had to find one, it might be the Battle of Little Bighorn, Custer's Last Stand. It was thrown into a blender and set to music. To me, the sound was imperfect, organic, and life-affirming. The minute I first heard it back in 1983, I knew I had found a missing part of my soul, raggedly shoved into place, and for the first time in my life, I felt like a whole person. However, that was my own reaction. My dad's was something entirely different. As we continued on our journey, and as the spirited glory of the alarm's music spilled out of the tape player, I waited for a clue to his inner thoughts. As the stand led into Across the Border, he spoke. I do not understand this music you and your sisters like. It's too fast. It has no melody. My dad's thoughts were now on record. I stopped the cassette and took it out. Nervous and frustrated, I fumbled a bit, putting it back into its case. I opened Julio Iglesias and put it on instead. At least there was a tenuous connection to the alarm with Julio. The image of alarm guitarist Dave Sharp 
wearing a Julio Iglesias t-shirt in the strength tour program from 1986 was burnt into my brain. I spent countless hours in the 80s lying on my bed, leafing through it, listening to various alarm albums and wishing a tour would come through our town. To me, the image and images of the alarm were almost as important as their music. Western outfits, red exploding poppies, religious symbols, massive guitar arm swings, and mile-high electric shock hair, just to name a few. When I was 14 years old in 1984, starving for meaning and belonging, I ate that shit up. The alarm's identity became my identity. Always an outsider looking in, I wanted to live in a world where the alarm was the biggest, most important thing going, and the messages from their music, interpreted, perceived, or otherwise, were understood and enjoyed by everyone equally. By aligning myself with the alarm, I felt like I was part of something bigger than myself. This was my secret frame of reference. It was perspective I wore like a shield to help me through high school and beyond. Julio Iglesias serenaded all the women he loved before in the front of the pickup as we approached Bishop, California on the I-395. As we drove, the amazing scenery shot by at 75 miles per hour. To the east was the parched dry lake of Owens River Valley. Its river-fed lifeblood diverted to water the suburban lawns of Los Angeles hundreds of miles to the south. To the west were the high, rocky peaks of the Sierras. Once an impassable obstacle to manifest destiny, now a virtual playground dotted with ski resorts and hiking trails. This part of Northern California, which has ties to history and wide-open spaces, had become a place of refuge for suburbanites. People like my dad, who worked tough modern jobs with little reward, building important government-contracted, secret machines all year long just so they could come here and spend a few days pretending that the industrial progress of their employ had never occurred in the first place. Whether he or I liked it or not, my dad's job in the defense industry gave me a relatively comfortable life. Weird and tumultuous at times, sometimes dangling just a few notches above the poverty line, but still safe. On the other hand, my dad's upbringing was anything but. He did not talk about it much. It was trips like the one to Aspen Grove where he would let his guard down and tell my brother and I the secrets of his past. They came in snatches of anecdotes instead of long-winded stories. Among shaggy dog jokes and penny poker games lit by a campfire, we heard tales of his own father's violent anger, of being sent away by his parents to live on a co-op farm when he was just four years old, about trying to make ends meet in the Great Depression, about fighting in World War II, working in coal mines, getting robbed in San Francisco, and trying to make it as a TV actor in the 1950s. There was nothing romantic or reverent about the way he told these stories. They all had a twinge of pain, guilt, and lessons learned. I hung on to these stories throughout my childhood, trying to piece them together to understand who my father really was as a person. If the moments I had to understand my father were few, the moments I had to earn his respect and approval were even fewer. In many ways, I always felt like I let him down. For every soccer goal I scored for him as a coach, there was a flub tackle or a missed pass that he seemed to remember more fondly. My dad loved to ride motorcycles, but I was never good at it. My dad loved to shoot guns, but I never had any proclivity for it. I did share a love of the outdoors and hiking and camping with him. However, that was just the start for my dad. A vacation trip, like the one to Aspen Grove, was not for idle camping and hiking. We were there for business. We were there to look for treasure, discover artifacts, feel vibes, and prospect for gold. Vacations with my dad were work, the real work he wanted to be doing instead of the drafting table prison sentence 400 miles to the south. Like I said, he planned these trips for an entire year. 
He was desperate to break the monotony of his life with some kind of adventure. He wanted us to get up early, dig some dirt, pan for gold, dig more dirt, get wet, get dirty, and then dig some more. And I have to admit, it was fun, at least for a little while, a couple days maybe, but not for a week or two. My brother and I worked so hard at school and our part-time jobs, we just wanted to rest on vacation, read some books and magazines. That's all I really wanted to discover, some peace and rest. My dad, though, he had other ideas. Deep in the second half of his life, I figured he was searching for meaning the only way he could manage. On vacation from work, two weeks out of the year. We would be at our destination within an hour, and I still wanted my dad to like the alarm. I wanted him to like something that I liked. I wanted him to understand who I was. I tried to understand him by watching Clint Eastwood Westerns with him, by reading his conspiracy theories, sampling his politics, and by attempting to enjoy his pastimes. Now, I just wanted to find one thing of my own that he would accept as legitimate. I may have still considered the alarm mine, but by the time we were on the road to Aspen Grove in the 90s, they had long since broken up. The alarm's music that most inspired me came from their rough-around-the-edges period in the early 80s. Back then, they were a punk-inspired new wave band with a lot of interesting things to say and a lot of interesting ways to say it. They helped tear down the walls of album-oriented rock in an era before the term alternative was ever coined. However, as they progressed through the years and became better musicians with a more refined sound, the edge to the music, the part that I most identified with, disappeared. When punk broke again with Nirvana in 1991, they found themselves as part of the establishment being torn down on the other side of the alternative. They broke up soon after and left a huge rift in my own personal landscape that I have never quite filled since. So at that moment, I decided to pull out all the stops. I found my absolute favorite song by The Alarm from their Strength album, the song I knew would be my last best chance to get my dad to understand why I liked them so much. I had held it back because I wanted to have some ammo to fight future front seat battles, but with time running out, it was now or never. I queued it up, and it started to play. The mournful harmonica opening of Spirit of 76 came out of the tinny Toyota speakers. My dad said nothing, but I saw one of his eyes open wide. He used to play harmonica for us when we were little kids. He was quite good at it, and I knew he loved the sound of the instrument. Then the vocals came in, some of the best sung vocals The Alarm ever produced. I could see in his cold, blue steel eyes the lyrics taking him back to some place only he knew in his head. I watched and waited. As each note passed, I realized I might have found the right song. I might have just imagined it, but at that moment, I think I saw a smile start to crawl across his face. His head nodded to the music. I'm pretty sure his head nodded anyway. He liked it. I liked it too. No words were exchanged between us, but something had happened.
then the song changed. The slow part broke into crashing guitars and a rock beat. My dad fell back to his everyday poker face as quickly as it had lit up when Spirit of 76 started. He did not say anything, but he did not have to. This part of the song was not his part. This was the music of my sisters, the music I liked, the music he did not understand. I self-consciously listened to the rest of the song. I did not want it to be over. I was hoping to see his face light up again, and I waited for it. When he did light up once more, it was during the bridge, when the song slows down for a few contemplative seconds. Mercy lights shine in the distance, same as they did for us now. Mercy lights shine bright in the distance, where I am now, my You see, some nights when I can't sleep, I still think of you. Of all our promises, all our dreams we share. I know those lights still call to you. I can hear them now. With those few lines, I could see relevance to the music and lyrics in my dad's eyes. I could have imagined it, but to this day, I believe it was there. It seemed that I'd finally found the one moment in a song that was worth the effort of trying to play music for my dad. At that instant, I wanted the song to last forever, so I could stay in this place I had discovered, a place where I believed my dad and I truly shared something in common, a place where I had found something of my own, something I discovered on my own, that my dad then discovered he liked just as much as I did. The song finally ended, I took the cassette tape out and turned off the radio. We were just passing the turnoff to the 120 at Levining. We were near Aspen Grove. We would be at our campsite in minutes. We sat quietly the rest of the way. We turned into the Aspen Grove campground and found a nice site by the river. We all loved camping by the river. The sound of the rushing water was the most soothing sound I could imagine. We made camp and made a fire. 
We cooked hot dogs and marshmallows and listened to the music of the rushing water, the way my dad so perfectly described it, as we played poker for pennies in the dying light of the day. Later in the trip, we did all the things my dad loved. We fished for trout, then threw them back in the river. We used metal detectors to never find buried treasure. We explored old dirt roads looking for ghost town sites, and we shot cans and bottles with hollow-point bullets from a forty-five automatic. When we drove home a week later, I had four hours in the front seat to kill, but I never directly tried to play my dad the alarm again, not on that trip or any other. Instead, I lived in reverie, to recall a single moment, real or imagined, when I chose to believe that we both enjoyed the same music at the same time for the same reasons. This is one moment I hold dear to this day. A moment when I so badly needed to make a connection with the man who I knew as my father at that point for 23 years, but never really knew as a person. And what I'd give today to have just one more trip to the gold country with my dad, sitting in the cab of his truck, navigating the I-395 while negotiating our relationship. But at least I have that moment. A moment in the cab of a one-ton pickup truck, hauling a Lance camper with my brother inside, speeding down a highway towards a middle-class refuge. A moment that occurred only once in my life, near a small campground in the Sierra Nevada mountains, a high-elevation desert landscape in Northern California. A moment near Aspen Grove. After all these years, I'm still running. I've got the scars to testify. I fought the battles, I lost the war. I had it all, I gave away so much more. Tasted the glory, choked on it dead of this dirty world. I broke a promise, it was mine to keep. I tore it down, I made it strong. I was born to burn. 